Alright, tonight we're going to continue our study in the Gospel according to John. Last week I taught in part John 14, 13 through 21. And then when time expired, we were about to begin a study of the Sermon on the Mount. And we had done, of course, the Olivet Discourse, and we had done the the um, Upper Room Discourse. But uh, we're running ahead of where we actually are in John, but that's because this verse, these verses from John 14, 13 through 21 give us an indication of the need for all of us to understand the doctrine of the kingdom. And we'll get back to verse 8, reading through verse 13, and then we'll get into marriage because it's there that we will see the Syrophoenician woman who uh, tells the Lord about her husband. He said, "You that's not your husband. You've had seven husbands. <laughs> so, uh, shocker. Okay, let's go to the Lord in prayer and use First John 1, 9 as may or may not be necessary. Father, we are grateful for the privilege of being able to come and to present our prayer requests to You. You've heard the many requests that we've had with emphasis on the election. So we're going to need You to provide us what many would say would be a miracle. But uh, we leave it with You. And help us to have the right mental attitude that we should have, knowing that You are going to provide exactly what we need. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Alright, the immediate context, I'm going to have a little brief intro here very quickly. The immediate context of the Olivet Discourse. We had the Olivet Discourse, we had the Sermon on the Mount, then we had the Upper Room Discourse. We covered uh, those basically. So uh, the immediate context of the Olivet Discourse deals with Christ's prediction of the destruction of the temple and what would happen after that. I think about that and when I think about the Mount of uh, the Olivet, uh, he was probably sitting on top of, uh, and I, this is obviously extra biblical revelation, but he's sitting on a little wall and he's talking to all the disciples and there's the, temp- the temple and he speaks to them. You remember about the temple. It was the focal point of course, the Jewish worship and the disciples, being all Jews, were concerned about what's going to happen to the temple and how it relates to the future nation. And uh, this would certainly uh, uh, provide many questions that they had. And <clears throat> as you remember, we we spoke to the questions and the answer and his ascension that he predicted and. Looked at the scriptures in Matthew twenty four three, I think through Acts one six. So uh, he, uh, in essence, was telling them about the unconditional covenants. Actually, Abrahamic, the Palestinian, the Davidic, and the Nanu, and then how that, those related to the conditional covenant of the Mosaic law. And they didn't know a lot. 
in our study of the Olivet Discourse, you'll remember they didn't understand about the intervening period of the church age. Then on the Sermon on the Mount, uh, our Lord's Sermon on the Mount, which chapters 5 through 7 of Matthew, and uh, it, of course, was uh, where He went up into the mountain area and a whole lot of people came. Even they brought their sheep and so forth and all set out on the grass and He talked to them a great deal, you'll recall. Uh, and He specifically made clear that His message was for Israel and Israel only, not to the church. And we saw that uh, in Matthew chapter 5 reading all the way through chapter 7, verse 28. Uh, And then we had the upper room discourse, and we studied that on more than one occasion. That's actually the upper room being where the Lord's table was. So uh, that's kind of a brief intro. Now let's get into... Actually, let's go directly to the review that we were having, which would be point six. Uh, the uh, doctrine of the kingdom. Doctrine of the king in point six uh, on page one. And then we turn the page and we go directly to the doctrine of the kingdom itself. So we'll have a bit of, bit of review and then we'll pick up with new material a little later. Not, not too much review. So here we go. Christ's argument in Matthew chapter 12 verse 28 seems to be that His expulsion of demons is proof enough of His offering the Messianic kingdom to Israel. The act was one of numerous evidences provided by the Lord that the kingdom of God uh, was offering of an earthly kingdom to Israel and of course with four unconditional covenants the Abrahamic, the Palestinian, the Davidic, and the New. Alright, then we had some points on interpreting the teachings of Christ. Scholars have found the Synoptic Gospels exceedingly difficult to interpret. These four books chronicle a unique era in God's plan for human history. Those four being, the, as you'll recall, the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Alright, this gospel revealed our Lord's sinless life and saving work, but the record of His earthly ministry also includes His kingdom platform and His prophecy of Israel's persecution. In fact, the kingdom age separates and connects Israel with the church. We think of the kingdom age as being as we have it on this chart, but we don't offer, often think about it as connecting as well as an insertion so or an intercalation because our emphasis is always on the fact that it's just part of the kingdom age and it's part of the church age, not quite either one of them. But that's what we're studying, the kingdom age. Or the age of the hypostatic union, it is also called. And the hypostatic comes from hupo, under, and a static comes from stasis or stasis, which is the Greek word, of course, for uh, un- coming under, because it falls under, if you will, hupo being the emphasis, under, 
and stasis means to stand, to stand down, to stand under, which is what Christ did. Okay, so consequently, as a certainty and accurate interpretation of the Gospels requires an understanding of dispensations, probably more so than any of the other dispensations. Alright, with absolute authority, Jesus Christ presented Himself to Israel as the Son of David, the King of Israel, and the Messiah. Matthew 4.27, John 4.25, John 9.36, and John 10.36. Alright, Christ's presentation took many forms. Matthew in particular recorded most of these offerings. Christ performed many miracles which drew attention to Himself as the Savior of mankind and the King of the Jews. And of course you can go to Pastor Merritt's study books where you will find 353 prophecies under the title, He the Christ. The chart can also be found on the internet under the title, 353 Prophecies Fulfilled in Christ. So Christ announced His kingdom policy in three major speeches the Olivet Discourse, the Upper Room, and the Sermon on the Mount. And as indicated, we took care of the Olivet and the Upper Room Discourses, and now we're ready for a little more detail on the Sermon on the Mount. So here we go, new material. Our Lord's Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5 through 7, further illustrates the need for careful interpretation This was not a private discourse with the twelve disciples, although some were present. To whom was this sermon addressed? To Israel. To the church? Well, to both or neither. Jesus was speaking to the large crowd of believers gathered around Him on the mountainside. All right. uh, 5.1 in Matthew says, Now when He saw the crowds... He went up on a mountainside and sat down, and His disciples came to Him. We don't know how many, but some came to Him. I suspect it might have been all. Who knows? Alright, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at His teaching. His ministry to Israel was underway because He had not yet been rejected by His people. He was sitting before Israel clarifying the character of God's kingdom and righteousness and contrasting the Mosaic Law's real purpose with the legalism of the Pharisees. So this was introducing something to many, new and different. In other words, those Pharisees have been teaching you this and teaching you that, but let me tell you, there's more to it. And... uh, He begins to contrast how no one can keep the law. We are all in trouble there. And then he gives them the Beatitudes as we have briefly seen earlier. And uh, how you just can't keep the Beatitudes. You're going to have to have a transformation. But he doesn't get into a lot of detail about the transformation. He just presents... Here are the Beatitudes. Blessed are this, blessed are that, blessed are those. And of course, that pretty well causes us to say, hey, we need something else. And maybe it was done for the purpose of letting Israel know you are not 
keeping the law. All right, you need to understand the spiritual aspect of the law, and uh, you need to understand the promise of the Messiah, which he will tell them over and over and over again in his ministry. But he doesn't just do it all at once. He did it for three and a half years or so, or who knows, as a certainty, how long he preached. All right, uh, now let's take a look at, first of all, Matthew 5 1. We talked about the crowds, but he says us now, when he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and they followed him. And when Jesus had finished saying what he was going to say to them, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. And of course, his ministry was underway because he had not been rejected by his people yet. And that all will come later, as you know. But it all unfolds, and that's what Israel had difficulty with, certainly the disciples. All right, they needed the Holy Spirit, which we have. So that's why we shouldn't be too suspect of them and critique and what they didn't know because they are not like us. Alright, he was sitting before Israel clarifying the character of God's kingdom and righteousness and contrasting the Mosaic Law's real purpose with the legalism of the Pharisees. Christ was not presenting a way of salvation. His message concerned the believer's post-salvation way of life, which changes from age to age. His teaching differed from the Mosaic Law, which was instituted again for Israel. So the question, to whom do these instructions pertain? First of all, the Sermon on the Mount was addressed to the Jewish followers of Jesus who heard him deliver it. Many Gentiles also were present in the crowd, especially from Syria and Decapolis because of the fact that he was north of the Sea of Galilee and those are the contiguous areas, or actually you call them countries, if you will. But uh, certainly they probably spilled over, hurt the people, and decided, well, let's go over and see what's going on. And there were plenty of Jews in those lands. They, you know, they did not stay in the land that God gave them necessarily. They were given certain spaces which later became known by different names like Samaria, you know. And uh, Damascus even at one time had a lot of Jews in it. And then many of them, uh, many of the areas that he gave, that is to say God gave to Israel, they didn't stay. Uh, They were quite mobile. Nomadic, just like their forefather Abraham. All right, uh, the question is, to whom do these instructions pertain? That is to say, the instructions that he gave on the Sermon of the Mountainside. All right, and we know to whom they were addressed, certainly. Jewish followers of Jesus. But many Gentiles also were present in the crowd, as we've noted. 
Notice Matthew 4.24, we base that on the fact that news about him spread all over Syria. And people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. So large crowds from Galilee, Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and regions across the Jordan followed him. And you remember the Promised Land was primarily west of the Jordan River, although there were about three different tribes that got property over on the east side of the Jordan. Alright, as in the Old Testament, the Gentiles were blessed through Israel and definitely had access to the kingdom of God promised to Israel. This included past, present, and future. And in fact, one of their jobs was to go and evangelize and take the gospel message to others, that is to say Israel, which they did from time to time. Uh, but they had to often be motivated by the Lord. Notice Genesis 12.3, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth shall be blessed through you. Talking about Abraham, the first Jew. Alright, so 12.1, 12.2, and 12.3 are most important as relates to the declaration to get up and cross the river and go directly to the land. No, you can only go directly to the land if you will not bring your family. And he couldn't turn his family loose. And so he had to go, they had to go all the way to Iran and then comes back south to the promised land after the family died. So many other people went up with them as well as large droves of livestock, both flocks and herds. And they had a lot of descendants, even as far north in Mesopotamia as Haran, where they originally were permitted to go first. Alright, Zechariah 8, 22 and 23. Zechariah writing in about 520 B.C. And uh, Zerubbabel was their political leader and Joshua was their priest, high priest. And they returned to the land only authorized to rebuild the temple. And they had a hard time doing that because they wanted to work on their own homes rather than the temple. So what they did was they built the altar first and uh, said, okay, well, we've got a place now to worship. We can bring our sacrifices here. And they stopped. So God raised up Zechariah and Haggai to motivate them. Two prophets who prophesied at the same time and motivated Israel to go ahead and finish the temple. Alright, I'm going to read 8, 22, and 23. And many peoples and powerful nations will come to Jerusalem to seek the Lord Almighty and entreat Him. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In those days, ten men from all languages and nations will take firm hold of one Jew by the hem of his robe and say, Let us go with you because we have heard that God is with you. Or Matthew 8.11, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. 
So it's for others, uh, primarily for Israel. But there will be many people in the millennium who will want to go up with them. And I'm sure there were some sparse examples of that even during the age of Israel proper. People who wanted to go. Alright, uh, and we know there were speci- we know this because in the Mosaic Law specifically you have requirements for those who permit Israel to join them. And you can do this with an Israelite and you can do this with a Gentile, but you can't do this with an, uh, an Israelite, you know, like slaves, for example. You can never make a slave a slave forever. You only serve seven years. Or the, the Jubilee, 50 year, happened to take place. They got their freedom back. But you could keep a Gentile forever. And that's just the way God was. And it was very clear in the Scripture. We have a doctrine of slavery, by the way, on the Internet under Pastor Mary's study books. What the Bible has to say about slavery. Alright, the presence of Gentiles does not change the fact that Christ was addressing Israel. We've just talked about a few examples of how Gentiles would, would and did join up with Israel. But it didn't affect the fact that the message of the kingdom was for Israel. So the presence of Gentiles doesn't change the fact that Christ was addressing Israel in this particular discourse. And the other two, in fact, that we uh, have covered. That is to say, the upper room and then the the Mount of Olives. Alright, let's go on now. But certain aspects of the message that is that we're studying right now, a future fulfillment, perhaps near future, perhaps distant future, depending on whether or not Israel would accept her king. And we know they did not accept their king. But there was always the hope. In fact, there is a specific place which we're not going to cover tonight or get to, but where from here on, Jesus will say, no longer is the kingdom near. He'll preach, the kingdom is near, the kingdom is near, the kingdom is near. And then the Bible tells us, the Scripture tells us in the Gospels, no longer did He say, the kingdom is near. Because he realized in his omniscience they've rejected me. They will not provide enough, whatever that number was, enough positive volition to permit him to implement his kingdom. It could be 100% and any percentage thereafter because we just don't know what they did. In other words, when did enough people say, I want to, I'll accept the Messiah would it have permitted him to set up his kingdom? Like this chart right here that I'm pointing out here. And I got my trusty laser to accept the kingdom and implement it. We don't know how many. We know that Christ was rejected, but how many rejected him? It's kind of like our election coming up. How many are going to vote correctly? How many are going to vote incorrectly? incorrectly you know 
And uh, we don't have that kind of information in the Scripture. All right, let's go on to the next point. Certain aspects of the message anticipated a future fulfillment and that it was near, but we don't know. We know when it was, but we don't know then how, how many it would have taken. Now let's just take a look about the hearers and what they heard. Well, they heard what we call the Beatitudes. The opening lines of the sermon had not yet been accomplished even though the Messiah had arrived. And these are especially, I don't want to say important to me, but they're especially meaningful to me, better better term. Because I used to read, I could get there in my mother's New Testament and I could read as a youngster. Uh, oh, I had to, of course, be old enough to read. And that's probably when I was 16. No, 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 I'm kidding, I'm kidding. But blessed are the, and I'd read these and I'd say, oh, I can't get it. I can't do these things. I'm going to hell. Or I'm going to heaven and I don't know which or why and had no idea about Christ on the cross and all that stuff. That has to be taught by later, you know, to me. But notice, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Now this is Christ's platform. Blessed are those, and blessed can be translated happy. It's makarios in the Greek, and it can go either way. Blessed or happy. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. You remember it was Peter who said, you know, how often do we turn the cheek? Seven times? And he said, no, 70 times seven. That has so much meaning eschatologically. That's 490 years. And you know about 490 years in the 70th week, etc. So as long as you're you're a part of that 70 year, seven year period, we call it the 77s, uh, you're going to have to turn your cheek. And I'm sure Peter didn't like that. Thought, this is ridiculous. I don't know what he means. What does he mean by that? You know, just like I said, what does he mean by all this? You know. And many people have said, what, what is he talking about? Well, that's why we're studying the kingdom. Hopefully we'll get a glimmer. Alright, but since the Messiah spoke these blessings, the listeners could take comfort, fully confident that all would be accomplished. And why not? Our Lord, during the first two years of His three-year ministry, was continuously offering Israel, offering Israel her kingdom. But little did the crowds who attended on that mountainside realize that Christ would be rejected. Now later on, because he's going to say it over and over and over again, I'm going to be rejected and I'm going to the cross and I'm going in the grave and I'm coming out. Just like Jonah. 
and uh, somehow, somewhat masked at times, masked at times. But he told them over and over and over again. And I went over all those because I thought, wow, I didn't realize that. I didn't realize that he told them over and over again what was going to happen to him. And certainly little did the crowds attending this discourse realize that Christ would be rejected and the complete fulfillment of His words would not occur during His first advent or certainly uh, even the yet undisclosed church age that it would be an age. They just didn't know. So even now the meek have not yet inherited the earth. All right, nor is God's will done on earth as it is in heaven. So, Matthew 6, that's 3, 9, 10, 11, 12, and 13. This, then, is how you should pray. It's a kingdom age prayer, though it also, for us, is applicable to the extent that this is a declaration of what we will one day want to see. Alright, going on. This then is how you should pray. The Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Set apart will be your name. The Greek is the same as the word that tells us to be set apart. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And that's the one that got me, boy. I held, <laughs> I uh, had trouble with that. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And of course, all of these are tough. You know, all the synoptic gospel requirements are really tough and impossible which is why Christ had to do it all for us. Alright, His will is done on earth in the sense that believers can and do, at least somewhat, His purpose for their lives, but His will cannot be done as it is in heaven until Christ deposes Satan and establishes His own regime. Alright, then the meek will inherit the earth only under His gracious, all-powerful administration in that future dispensation in the millennium. Christ announced policy for His kingdom and Israel rejected both Him and it. So we've all failed and we've all found ourselves in need of something beyond our own self because we just can't meet His requirements. There are so many things in there. Uh, I think back on what a sorry human being I have been and probably am, but the point being i got a Savior now that can give me direction. But uh, <laughs> I always think back on my very best friend, Jimmy Sessions, bless his heart, we were arguing over whose ruler it was. You know how you all got, we all had a ruler in grade school? Maybe you all didn't, but we didn't wake up. We got rulers. And we were arguing over it. And I swore it was my ruler, and I really thought it was my ruler. 
And then I flipped it over and had sessions on the other side written. And I took that ruler and snapped it in two and said, it is your ruler. <laughs> and handed it back to him. And I think, ooh. And then I read something like this in the Bible, you know, what we're supposed to be like. And I was over there. And the requirements were over here. And uh, and it was a long process, but I finally realized there was a way, and that is to, it's Christ. That is to say, a way of salvation. Nothing that we can do will get us salvation. Only faith alone in Christ alone. And we got to come to that conclusion. Because that's what the Holy Spirit demands of us. Recognition of a need for the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's up to Him at the proper time to do that. And He will do it. Alright, let's go on. Christ was speaking directly to His current audience. The generation of the age of the hypostatic union. Hupo under static stasis. Stand down when Christ stood down. Kingdom age. Right there. Alright. So there was an immediate and present application of our Lord's message but it must be properly interpreted in the light of God's clock. And what is God's clock? It's the dispensation chart. There's nothing on this chart that's not going to happen. It's all going to happen. It's outlined for us. And you know the timing is a little hard to come by because He didn't tell us about the timing of this major event right there, the rapture of the church. So we just have to hope we're right here at the X, right before the rapture. Alright, this is why we need to mention persecution for righteousness, deliverance from evil, and false prophets. So let's read now. Matthew chapter 5, 12. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Alright, now how about our responses? 737, 38, and 39. Simply let your yes be yes and your no, no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. You have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn him the other also. And remember Peter said, how many times, Lord, do we have to do that? Seven times? No, 70 times seven. 490 times. That's, as you know, can only be understood by looking at the doctrine of the 70th week from somebody. And there are many people who have come up with that. We have been so blessed to have people like Chuck Missler and Bob Thame and Lewis Ferry Chafer and Ryrie and Pentecost, Feinstein, Fruchtenbaum. Uh, just so many great Bible teachers. All right, let's go on. Watch out for false prophets, says Matthew 7.15. 
they come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. These caveats do not describe the perfect environment of the millennium, no, because we'll all be changed by, again, the uh, fourth of the divine institutions, the new covenant. All right, for his then present audience, that's the for this particular discourse up on the mountain. They don't describe perfect environment, but that will later be described in great detail. Perfect environment of the millennium when Christ will rule. So for His then present audience... Christ clarified the believer's way of life at a time when the Mosaic Law was so greatly distorted by the scribes and Pharisees. And that's when Christ, you know, began to say, well, uh, wait a minute here. You say you haven't committed adultery. I tell you, if you hadn't lusted in your heart after a woman, you committed adultery. And hey, if you ever been angry about somebody, you committed murder. And on and on and on. Impossibility. So that's why Christ had to come. If you've been angry at your brother... Hmm, you're guilty of murder. You lusted after a woman? You're guilty of adultery. You know, so many impossibilities. And that's why Christ had to come. And that's why He did come. That whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Alright, let's keep on keeping on. Alright, such instructions offered encouragement and hope to those who witnessed His earthly ministry yet never saw the reality of His announced blessings. And that's why we're said to be so blessed because we haven't seen all the things Israel saw. And yet we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Just think of it. All the many miracles that Israel saw and they did not believe Him. And yet we have. Why? Because God and the Holy Spirit. We don't want to take credit for anything. Alright, let's go on. So Christ taught His followers to pray as we have seen. The kingdom come. A prayer which was relevant when sufficient positive volition in Israel would have ushered in the kingdom. Sufficient positive volition. And we don't know what that is. But... We do know it was insufficient. That's all we really need to know. Alright, now let's go to point 21. Christ taught His followers to pray as we have seen the kingdom come. 22, but this petition ceased to be pertinent when in fact that evil generation refused Him. Matthew 12.45 Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they go in and live there, and the final condition of that man is worse than the first. That is how it will be when this with this wicked generation. People have read that one and been puzzled about it, but you just have to remember the context. Israel said, I have cleaned up the house. I have cleaned it up. We brought all sorts of effort into doing the things that we think make us righteous. 
We don't do this anymore. And we don't do that anymore. We are just absolutely getting close to perfection. Because we have the law and we're keeping every jot and tittle of it, we think. And then all of a sudden, we find out that once you've done that, Israel, and you think you've got the house really clean, you know what happens next? More more worse, not more better, but more worse come in. And it's twice as worse, twice as bad as before. All right. So the Lord's Prayer has an application, but it is not, uh, it is not, of course, a total change. It is merely to get us to realize how far short we come to the glory of God. So the correct conclusion is that the Sermon on the Mount belongs to the dispensation of the hypostatic union and to the millennium, but not to the church age. So Matthew is recording an offering to a kingdom, Israel, in Matthew 21.43. He foretells of Israel's rejection of that offering, result in its being offered to the nations of the church age. Alright, so therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people, Gentiles, who will produce its fruit. How do we produce its fruit? By the miraculous work of God the Holy Spirit. Alright, so Matthew's the only writer in the New Testament to use the term kingdom of heaven and he uses it more than 28 times. So though not directly pertinent to our study, I think it appropriate here to make comment with reference to the two terms, kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven. So here we go. The kingdom of heaven as used by Matthew is often used synonymously with the term kingdom of God. For example, Matthew 3, 1 and 2, In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That would be Christ offering His kingdom. And then Matthew 4.17, From that time Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now he's going to stop saying that. That's No longer will he say the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and we'll get to that passage later. That's when he knows it's over. The last Ish, the, the, the last chance for Israel has come and they failed. And that's when he will cease any longer to say the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he says in verse 19 and 20, Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now think about these are the things he said on the mountainside to these people who had come. 
Not everyone that saith unto thee, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. And I'll say, depart from me, you know me not, is what the next verse said. So they hadn't believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, but they had done all these wonderful works. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Alright, and then Matthew 8, 10. 11, 12, and well, we need to stop right there. So we'll just do that. We'll pick up somewhere around here and uh, finish up on the difference between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. And, and uh, that'll be a task for another day. So let us pray. Father, we are grateful for the privilege of studying the synoptic Gospels. Because they certainly teach us that we can't do it on our own. They certainly teach us that it takes faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ and that only for salvation. So if anyone is out there now in the computer land, and that, and you have not believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, now is the time to do that. So guide us and direct us throughout this next week. Give us an election, which of course is evident, clear, and accepted by all in this country of ours. Help us not to become disloyal subjects, but followers of the law of the land. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.